0: Vegas baby Vegas there are some parts of training to take place in the southwest United States when you're in the SEAL teams One of those places is within driving distance. Actually, a few of those places are within driving distance of Las Vegas. On more than one occasion, we'd go to Vegas on the weekend and have a break from training that was well-deserved and well worth it. There was one week, I recall, in, I think, my second platoon where we ended up going to Vegas a lot in a short period of time (laughs) and we had to come back for some training. I think it wasn't exactly a weekend. So we made that drive, which was probably three hours, something like that on not much sleep. Although, you know, I don't think we were too tired to make it a, a dangerous drive necessarily. I don't think we were being too irresponsible there, but we were going quite fast, way too fast for our own good. The roads were, Pretty deserted this two lane road I can't remember what highway it is, and so again, not too irresponsible to other people, and we consider ourselves great drivers as every person does in the world, <laughs> but I think especially young men and especially young men in the military who've been to many driving courses, we ended up going to Casinos, as people do, and I had this—I <laughs> had—I had this cognitive dissonance when it came to certain games. For instance, roulette was a favorite game of a few of us there, and and on deployment in Europe, we'd go down to the hotel casino in Europe and play roulette. And even though in roulette, like most casino games, The past is not an indicator of how the future will play out. So if it's 10 reds in a row, the likelihood of a red or a black is no different than it was on any of those individual spins beforehand. But again, we use some good cognitive dissonance there to just (laughs) have fun while we're in the game. By the way, roulette is some of the worst odds, if not the worst odds in the house. Perhaps is a a better game if you want to make your money last. Anyway, went to some of the casinos, ones you've heard of, like the Bellagio, elsewhere. Bellagio, we actually saw Philip Seymour Hoffman, may he rest in peace, and some of his entourage. Philip Seymour Hoffman was very, very incognito in a sort of torn baseball cap, torn jeans, which everybody's got torn jeans now. Back then, (laughs) it was not... Uh, nearly as popular you looked like a homeless person with torn jeans at that time like flip-flops in the bellagio but uh, a few of us were fans at the time and you know didn't accost him or anything but that was a, a great experience a few of those guys who were on that vegas trip are no longer with us unfortunately i remember one of the guys in my sister platoon He loved his bourbon neat, and I probably gained my love of bourbon from him. Of course, again, like jeans, you've got uh, 21-year-olds drinking craft single malt uh, whiskey on a regular basis. That was not the case at that time. He would get a few fingers of bourbon or other... Types of whiskeys, maybe scotch, uh, every single time the waitresses would come by. It's a nice ability to get some high shelf liquor at a, uh, a very low price of free, which is uh, much appreciated when you're on military pay. After that, we went to some bars on the Strip, including, I remember, in particular, I think it was called The Moon, The Moon Bar, something like that. And the moon is at a rooftop of one of the popular hotels. Can't remember which one. And it was, I think, so named because not only did it give you a great view of the sky, but there was a skylight cut into the floor. I suppose we could call that a floor light or an earth light or something like that. But skylight cut into the floor with lots of lots and lots of thick Plexiglass. And the idea on this balcony was that you would stand over it and confront your fear of heights. And I got to say, even though all of us team guys had done all sorts of free fall jumps, climbs, not afraid of heights at all, compared to the average human, at least, when you stand over that thing, whatever it is, probably 30 stories up, and look down beneath your feet. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's not insignificant in terms of uh the, the nerves there. The way they have it lit up, it's you where you can see the ground, but there's this glow coming from beneath your feet, a kind of halo effect that really draws all of your consciousness in. As you look down and can't help but focus. Double down. What? You got an 11. You always double down on 11. I baby. know, but it's $200. It's blood money. Mm-hmm. You always double down on 11. That's one of the best scenes in Swingers. If you happen to watch that movie these days, you'll notice that Vince Vaughn looks like he's just been starving himself for like three months. And he's trying to get ready for a male model photo shoot. In a sense, this concept of doubling down is interesting because John Favreau's character in the movie. Or is it John Favreau? I'm not really sure. You can <laughs> yell at me on Instagram. John Favreau's character doesn't have a choice but to double down. And he's at a high limit table. And so he's already got $100 down, I think. So it would really be $200. and In that way, he has no choice but to double down by standard blackjack practice of what is in your interest according to math. But when you're putting down a lot of money, it's obviously a different story. As we've talked about here before on The Warrior Poet, humans are risk-averse. There are other games, though, that are actually much more important in terms of where you double down And when you decide not to, the most important of which is your life. And key to navigating your life obviously is the mind. But there are times where we end up focusing way too much on the things that are right in front of us. I contend that this may sound obvious, but where you are... Occupies your mind actually far more than it usually should because where we are, both physically and metaphorically, where we are in life isn't where we want to be. And we've talked about on the podcast here before the fact that I think we're wired to win and we'll optimize the game that is in front of us. So if you're stuck in a job or you're hanging out with people, That are not your ideal, you're going to try and win that game automatically. Your mind is doubling down whether you like it or not. So, what's actually new here? You might ask yourself, Sri, of course, that would be asking me. You ask me, Sri, what's new here? Because this mindfulness thing, has been around now for years and is building. And so I've been doing my meditation and I've been trying to monitor the scripts that are in my brain so I can operate effectively and and be at peace, at least for part of my day and part of my life. So it seems like you're just advocating mindfulness. Meanwhile, Shree, you've talked about running scripts in your brain automatically, that click whirr, that Cialdini talks about in his persuasion book. I'm going to run through a number of points here that I think connect a logical argument that is somewhat unique. I usually don't do this kind of thing in a listicle format where we run through the numbers. This is not clickbait or podbait here that we're hawking. But it does make sense to connect the dots here, so bear with me. As I go through these, number one, first, we are wired to win. So we optimize whatever game we are focused on. Talked about this primarily in Paleo Life, part two of two. That was episode number 26, if you wanna find that. Secondly, the game we are focused on winning can be set implicitly. And I think this is one of the most unique points of this concept. That I call the spotlight effect. The subtlety is that most people couch things that pop up in your mind as a distraction. And while that is true and is often true, the more important thing is A, that we have this whole overarching theme of a game, of an environment. And I'm also making the claim that. This game is what we're then motivated to achieve. It becomes our reason for living, our modus vivendi. James Clear, who we've talked about before, and if after the 10th mention of him, you don't check him out, then you're probably never going to check him out. James Clear makes a lot of points about environment, that environment dictates more about what we do, how we act, who we are, what we achieve than almost anything else. I would extend James Clear's points to be not as much about the physical environment, right? But I'm not saying he doesn't say this, but as much about the people you hang out with and a whole bunch of other aspects. So if you optimize that environment, you'll set yourself up for success more than anything else. Next, what your attention is on most, I contend, will be your implicit game. We all know that we spend most of our living lives, especially for those still working for someone else, you spend most of your lives working. And then depending on your hours, sleeping is a close second, eating's in there. Can't help but sleep or eat. What your attention is on most though will give you that reason for living. Since you're wired to win, If you spend a lot of time in dramatic situations with toxic people at work, your reason for living, whether you like it or not, will become either optimizing around that person, trying to please that person, or trying to defeat that person. Fourth, you can have an implicit game even if you don't know it. And the game can be extremely prosaic meaning boring, something, some sort of everyday activity. Could be like gardening. I actually have grown a ton of things on my uh, backyard table. I've got all sorts of obscure lettuces and... Tomatoes that I ordered, uh, brandy wine. I think it's supposed to be the perfect tomato. They come out at one pound very often and are just incredibly sweet and tart at the same time. Supposedly the perfect balance. I've got other tomatoes too. If you want to check out my garden, uh check out Tree Actually on Instagram. But because of that spending that time there, I mean, hobbies are are great. Hobbies are uh a lot of what makes life enjoyable and second to relationships. But I've spent way more time thinking about gardening than I ever wanted to. And that's bled over into optimizing my lawn and fixing the hose bib on the outside and all sorts of things like that, that really aren't my top priority. And and very few of those besides growing some, some nice vegetables that we can eat very few of those would make it into even the top 20 of things that I need to attack in the next few months. Fifth, I suggest that because humans are social creatures, this social influence plays an inordinate factor in the game that we will implicitly play and where we're spending our time and attention. So that spotlight is going to be drawn towards that activity almost like in Jurassic Park. You're supposed to you're supposed to not move when a, a T-Rex comes stomping around, right? Cuz they can't see motion. Of course that's completely BS because no one was alive when T-Rexes were around to test that out. And I'm sure those who who tested that out as, as the uh, subjects there didn't survive to tell the tale. And this is why I insist that paleontology may be one of the most sketchy of the sciences. So anyway, you need to be like a prison guard in a watchtower and actively move your attention in the right directions and not chase... The social distractions that pop up because we all know how it is, whether it's social media, whether it's people at work, you know, whether it's your MMA buddies or your bridge club. Does anyone play bridge anymore? You will inevitably get sucked into the worst kind of vortex with your mind. I think it was Mike Tyson who said, pick your own dream, not somebody else's. Wise words from a deceptively wise man. And that conclusion, that aphorism may sound also obvious, but when you hang around certain people and get distracted by those social influences and those become your modus vivendi, those become your dreams as well. And you'll anchor on those instead of really resetting from those distractions. You know what's cool? Night vision goggles. No matter how many times you use them, it's pretty awesome to be able to see in the dark because humans weren't built for that. One other thing that's pretty awesome is that there's certain aircraft and other tools that have infrared floodlights. So the way night vision goggles work is they allow you to see infrared light as visible light through the goggles, through the the projection of the goggles. They transform one wavelength into one that you can see. Of course, you can see a lot more if you have... Extra sources of infrared light reflecting off of everything. Add your own sort of infrared sun to the environment, and you could see a lot more. You ever heard the phrase mind's eye? That's essentially that spotlight of attention and where you shine that. My kids, at one time in their early education, let's call it kindergarten, their teachers used to use the phrase a lot because my kids would come home and say this. They talk about their mental movie. And in a previous episode, we talked about what I call screenwriting, which is replaying events or playing events that haven't happened yet over and over and over in your mind, including just how you could have written an email to a client a little better. So I'm not sure what your favorite prison, Movie or TV show is, whether that's Escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood, which was amazing. There's plenty of documentaries and other podcasts that have touched on that real world event, which is just fascinating. Or maybe it's Orange is the New Black. Maybe it's Prison Break. A lot of those things focus on. The escape or just dealing with being in prison. But again, I, I ask you to be that person in the watchtower with actually hands on that spotlight, actively shining it on where you want it to go. Because whatever is in that light is going to become the thing that you try and optimize and overanalyze and win at. All right. So I'm not going to beat this concept to death. Like many of the things we talk about here on the warrior poet, the concept itself is simple, but there's a lot of nuance and it depends on how and whether you actually implement it. So with that in mind, I'll continue down this list of, Sri, what's actually novel here? And again, it's how all the points are connected. So we're on number six. Maybe the most important thing you can do is train your mind in order to avoid the spotlight effect. It's not about being better or training a self. It might be easier and more practical to view your mind just as biological matter that has certain properties. It's an object separate from yourself and it's biological matter that you just need to train versus some sort of vague and or spiritual self. Next, number seven, we are likely to win the game we are focused on. I think you're a thousand times more likely to win that implicit game than the things that you're not focused on. The things that are not part of your attention. The things that are not in your environment. It's almost like the lottery, right? You you stand very little chance of winning the lottery, but there's the saying, you can't win if you don't play. Well, you're straight up not going to play the games that are not in your mental spotlight. Also, you may think you're playing the game in a certain way. but you may actually be turning it over your mind and focusing on the wrong thing. So as an example, let's say you want to succeed at work and you measure this by promotion, but maybe you've actually been trying to win a game of manipulation and perception in order to get there. And you're lying to yourself about whether you've been doing that. Maybe you're doing that because you've been paranoid about political manipulation from others. Because you got fired several years ago and you attributed blame to a colleague. And so you end up getting promoted, but you've been playing maybe a different game than you thought you were the entire time. So it's kind of be careful what you wish for. Number eight, most games are much more infinite than we think they are. Infinite in the Simon Sinek Way of thinking about things. And because they're infinite, you need to avoid analysis paralysis. Your brain will look at that spotlight and turn things over a zillion times until you get it perfect. Or maybe you're going to train that spotlight in a whole bunch of different directions to try and analyze the best option. And as the host of 48 Days to Work Your Love says, when it comes to many ideas, you just need to pick one. And go with it. The script in most people, the click were, says, but what if 10 years from now I'm still stuck in this thing and it's not making any money or I'm bored? Well, that's falling prey to a subtype of what we call the no future selves fallacy in episode number 12. You could always decide not to proceed or to do something else later. Secondly, in actuality, you have tons more options to make tweaks, improvements, and pivots than you're thinking in the beginning because it is an infinite game. There are so many variables. There are so many moving parts. There's so much that other people can and will do, whether they're on your team, whether they're a customer, or whether they're the competition. So then number nine, as you train that spotlight of the mind on a given problem, or let's say you put it in the right environment, following on from the last points. What's more important are the qualities of the path, the bounds of probability of what can happen. Think about exponential outcomes. Think about whether your downside is unlimited or limited. Is there a floor? How much risk are you taking personally? Are the returns or is the downside risk diminishing or accelerating? Are there network effects? What's the scalability? What's the market size? What are the macro factors? Of course, I'm talking business examples there, but. The same can be said of relationships. We as humans tend to obsess about things in that spotlight in so many emotional ways. And while we, of course, are emotional creatures, and you need to not ignore that, having a sort of rubric, some criteria that you can tick off as you're pointing that spotlight at a given problem is key. By the way, in the spirit of having a heuristic, having a rule of thumb you can use for a lot of problems, one good question to ask yourself is Does this thing give you energy or does it suck it away? And if that thing does or will give you energy, then by all means, keep doing it. If it sucks it away, then point that spotlight in a different direction. To close out this list of thoughts, maybe what I'm offering is that people tend to think of mindfulness as clearing the mind and getting rid of bad thoughts and mental habits. But I'm, I'm actually advocating not something different, but I'm suggesting a different point. It's that the spotlight can be a good thing. The fact that we're wired to win and the fact that our minds turn the problems in our environment and where we're paying attention, turn those things over so much can be a great thing because we solve problems when we're asleep. We solve these problems when we're in the shower and not even thinking about that environment just because we've trained our spotlight there and our mind can do the processing in the background to help us succeed. But we need to be mindful enough to point that spotlight in the right direction. this brings up some additional questions like okay how can we compartmentalize more the reason we might need to compartmentalize is that what if we have to play games we don't like what if we have to spend time with those in-laws what if we have to be at work with that toxic person what if that customer account is our biggest account and our business might fail if we fire the customer. So. I can't offer much more there. Than. The book Subtle Art of. Not Giving a Fuck. By Mark Marin. And. There are. What I've found in my own life. Tools and techniques. That either you can read about or. Or come up with on your own. One that I've come up with on my own is. A kind of mantra. That. I tell myself when I want to turn off thoughts about a a given thing. So if I'm at work thinking about a family problem, something like that, I have this mantra to enforce discipline in what I'm doing. It's not that I don't care about what's going on in the family. Similarly, if it's family time and I'm spending time with my kids, I need to turn off work just like you do. Right. And this mantra is kind of, I guess, related to, not necessarily inspired by, but it's very closely related to Jocko Willink's concept of discipline equals freedom. Some people during quarantine have compartmentalized by having a going-to-work routine. And that's especially true of those who have little kids. And for those people who have a basement, they kind of have their coffee, they dress up, they don't get a briefcase because no one carries briefcases anymore. But then they close the door to the basement and head downstairs and don't come up except for, I suppose food, something. (laughs) So if you can compartmentalize, whether that's coming up with your own emancipation mantra, as I call it, or something else that's going to really help you effectively search your holistic environment for new opportunities where you can pay attention I suppose there's something else about adjusting the energy level of the spotlight you don't always need it on the brightest setting and so how can you adjust that I don't I don't have all the answers here. I think the time that my spotlight is the highest is in physically dangerous situations or situations that involve people I care about where where they're at risk of harm, whether that be mental or, or physical. And just as much is when I'm dealing with toxic people in the workplace. It's hard to focus elsewhere in that environment. I suppose people and the quantity of work, the urgency of work, and the dissonance between how you want to be perceived, what you actually want to do are all things that, unfortunately, may be out of your control in controlling that energy of the spotlight. So let's all together figure out ways we can attenuate that setting. I help you. And now's that time of the program where we get all the way wet as usual. This is the much anticipated footnotes section of the episode. Can we talk about Prison Break for a second? That show was amazing. Just amazing characters, great writing, great plot. I think it may have gone off the rails in the later seasons. It turns out it was originally turned down by Fox, but then Fox saw the success of series like Lost and 24, and then they decided to commit, I think, a year or two after they were originally pitched by the producers. They made five seasons over a very large period of time. So the first four seasons were from 2005 to 2008. The fifth season was in 2017. I did not catch that fifth season for sure. Dominic Purcell played one of the two brothers, one of the main characters. Turns out he's Australian. So the guy who played Lincoln Burroughs is actually Australian. Could have fooled me. I am always amazed when people from other English-speaking countries besides America and Canada can pass off as native uh, American speakers, <laughs> native English speakers, as it were. And then the guy who plays the main character, I can't remember his first name, but one would think his last name is Burroughs in, in the show, given that's Dominic Purcell's character. The guy's name is Wentworth Miller. When I looked it up on IMDB, it's actually Wentworth Earl Miller III. And if that didn't give it away, Mr. Miller is an English American. So I don't know when he came to this country, but uh, same for him. He, definitely passes off as someone who was born in the U S and then one of the best characters in that. I didn't know his name before, but I got to give him a shout out. Robert Knepper or Robert Knepper. He played Theodore Bagwell, which I, at the time I did not know he had any other name, but Teabag. He apparently was in the, Jack Reacher and Transporter sequels as well, if you made it that far in those series. Footnote number two I'm curious about kids and winning that game. Is it bad if you are trying to optimize in the background for your kids? Hard to argue that that's a bad thing. We all care about our families, and so. It's definitely not the worst thing, even if we sometimes need to compartmentalize at work. I wonder, though, is it worse now? For instance, in paleo times, we had a two-part series, Paleo Life. Were people in those times trying to win the kid game? It just seems like not only were there less distractions a long time ago, but... It just feels like, intuitively, I have no data to back this up, but it feels like people just cared a ton less about so many things. So what is it in our culture now that that trains our minds to care more about winning every single game that we shine our proverbial spotlight on? Or maybe people cared as much then, they were just less risk averse. They just realize that risk and hardship are a part of life. And now we've gotten so used to our creature comforts, steady food supply, healthcare that can cure so many things that wouldn't have been curable even a short time ago. And maybe we've just become so much more risk averse, or maybe we just know so much more than we did before in terms of knowledge and logic that our intellect just can't help itself. And we make a mountain out of a molehill and turn the simplest problems into complex optimization challenges. Finally, before I was in the SEAL teams, I was on a ship and we were often at anchor. Anchoring operations are a lot more dangerous than the average non-navy person might think being an anchor is a complex evolution with a lot of steps there's a debate in the navy maybe people have said it a little by this time it was always about whether the flukes of the anchor the things that stick out that really make it look like an anchor whether that holds the ship in place or whether it's just the weight of the chain i'm sure for bigger ships and deeper depths it's the weight of the chain and for Your small little speedboat, your pleasure craft, it probably really is the flukes. When you're anchor, you're not exploring a big area. And so, similar to how we need to take our hands on that spotlight and move it around, it's difficult because we're anchoring, metaphorically, on our current environment. Yes, anchor chains break, the flukes can slip, and you can slide around in big currents or storms. Just like in real life, when coronavirus or a death in the family come along or you win the lottery, your life will change because that anchor has slipped. But it wasn't in your control. Try and get out of that anchored situation. Remove the inertia and turn that spotlight of attention where it needs to go. Raniac Productions. If you like The Warrior Poet, there's more great content on Instagram. Follow Sri, the Warrior Poet, on Instagram. That's S-R-I, the Warrior Poet. You can also get to know me on a personal level by following Sri, actually, on Instagram as well. The Warrior Poet is produced by Laddie, with special contributions by Spoonman and me, Sri. No 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 Kevin me na do spita